0: and turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. For those of you who are visiting this morning, we've just begun a series of uh, messages in the Gospel of John. Uh, last Sunday was the first Sunday of the month, and we started our first uh, uh, message with an introduction. And uh Kind of gave you an overview of the Gospel of John, but this morning we want to get into chapter one. And um, uh, John begins his gospel by giving us a remarkable description, of Jesus Christ. He never mentions Jesus' name until verse 17. I don't know if you noticed that in the reading this morning, but it becomes quite clear that he's talking about the Lord Jesus. And rather than beginning with the story of his birth, as the other Gospels uh, uh, do, uh, John comforts us with his deity in eternity. And uh, so that's the title of our message, The Deity of Jesus in Eternity. Uh, Moses begins in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 by confronting us with the majesty of God. It says, in the beginning, uh, God created the heaven and the earth. And in the same way, John in John 1, 1 comforts us with the majesty of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now John wants us to stand in awe of Jesus as God and as the one who reveals uh, the unseen God to us just as a word reveals an unseen thought. Uh, It's foundational. And that's our theme for the year, is affirming our foundations. But it is foundational to the Christian faith and crucial to your personal faith that you understand, that you embrace the truth that Jesus is fully God. It was once stated, and I don't know what the source of this uh, statement was, but it was once stated, a Savior, not quite God, is a bridge broken at the farther end. Someone else put it this way, if Jesus is not God, then we are sinners without a Savior. If Jesus were only a man and then he died for his own sins, then we are still in our sins. We have no hope. And so in order to reconcile sinful people to a holy God, Jesus must be God in human flesh. And John skillfully presents this in the prologue. That's what this uh, first portion is in verses 1 through 18. And the prologue introduces the main themes that are to appear throughout the gospel. I've listed them quickly there for you. Jesus' preexistence, Jesus' union with God, the coming of life in Jesus, the coming of light in Jesus, uh, the conflict between the light and the darkness, uh, the fact that we need to believe in Jesus. And then we also see the theme of re- the rejection of Jesus. And then it goes on to the divine regeneration, the glory of Jesus, the grace and truth of God in Jesus. Uh, Jesus and Moses, that is the law. Only Jesus has uh, seen God and then Jesus' revelation of the Father. Now, the center of the prologue is in verses 12 and 13, which is the central theme of John, that when we believe in Jesus, we are born of God and we become children of God. Uh, Now, today we're not going to really get to that central theme. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. And that shows us that Jesus Christ is the eternal word, the creator of everything who reveals the life and light of God in this dark world. You know, we cannot know God unless he chooses to reveal himself to us. First Timothy 6.16 tells us, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. John's point is that God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at that in verses 1 through 5 this morning. Notice, first of all, the eternal word of God, the eternal word of God. Again, verse 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Uh, We need to be very clear on what John is affirming here. Because, again, it is foundational to the Christian faith. I want you to notice four things concerning the eternal word of God this morning. And that is, first of all, Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. It says, in the beginning. Now that takes us back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, when God created the heavens and the earth. The verb was indicates that at the beginning of the universe, the word already was in existence. John wants us to see that he's writing about a new creation that centers in the eternal word, who is also the creator of all things, according to verse 3. You see, both statements in Genesis one one and John 1.1 don't let you debate the question, does God exist? You know, people have doubts about that. People have unbelief uh, uh, about God, uh, and they don't believe He exists. But it doesn't let you debate that. It just it it's makes a statement. Uh, they don't these qu- uh, verses don't ask for your opinion. Well, what do you think? You know, what do you think about it? No, oh, not we're we're not here just to think, see what we think. We're here to see what God's Word says. Rather, you have. No, uh, you really uh, don't have time to duck because it right, hits you right between the eyes. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. John means that there was never a time when the Word was not. Now, whenever the Scripture makes a bold declaration of Jesus' deity, you can be sure that the enemy will attack it. <clears throat> Virtually all heresies down through history to the present deny, uh, to the present deny either the full deity or the true humanity of Jesus Christ. Take, for instance, the heretic, uh, Arius and then his modern disciples, the Jehovah Witnesses. They argue that Jesus was not eternal. Rather, he's the first created being. The Jehovah Witnesses base this in part on Paul's statement in Colossians one and verse fifteen. It says, "Who in the is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature?" But you know, if they would just read the next verse, Paul explains what he means by firstborn in Colossians 1, 16 and seventeen. For by him were all things created that were in heaven and on are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. Now, if all things had been created through Him, then clearly He was not created. He's eternal. And in our text here, John emphasizes the very same thing in verse 3. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not uh, anything made that was made. And so obviously, if Jesus is a created being, then he came into being, and verse 3 is false. But John denies this, and he asserts that everything that had a beginning, that came into being, that is, came into being through Jesus. There's never a time when the word was not in existence. Jesus is eternal God. Now, secondly, notice that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Again, you say, well, that's pretty basic. Yeah, but it's important. It's foundational. John continues here and says, and the word was with God. Uh, The preposition here, with, explains to us the whole existence of the word and that it was orientated toward the Father. Probably we should understand from the preposition the two ideas of accompaniment and relationship. Not only did the word exist in the beginning, but he existed in the closest possible connection with the Father. And this shows that the word is not an impersonal idea. It's just not a Philosophy, but it's a person. This person is distinguishable from God, although at the first and third phrases of verse one show us he is eternal God. Verse two, John repeats the first two phrases of verse one, both for emphasis and to make sure that we understand what he's saying. The word was in the beginning with God. And while the Word is God, the Word is also distinct from God. Now, sometimes our finite minds have a hard time with that. We cannot really comprehend the mystery of the Trinity. Scripture is clear that God is one God who exists in three distinct persons. Each person is fully God, and yet he is not three gods, but he's one God. That leads us to, thirdly, Jesus is God. This third phrase here, and the word was God. Nothing higher could be said. All that may be said about God may fitly be said about the word. This statement should not be watered down. John is not merely saying that there is something divine about Jesus. He's affirming that he is God. Now, and I'm told by those who know the Greek, uh, and uh, I, again, don't claim to be a Greek scholar. But I'm told this, that he's affirming he is God, and he is doing so very emphatically in the, in the Greek language, because it's seen in the word order. Now, I know I'm getting into an explanation that comes uh, from something most of us, including myself, know very little about, and that is the scriptures in the Greek text. I believe I have reliable sources, though, at this point. And if you had to encounter the Jehovah Witnesses, they would claim that the Greek text and their New World Translation says, the Word was a God. No. Jesus is not a God. The Word was not a God. And they would say this, well, because there's no definite article before God, and so uh, they can say, he is a God. Well, first, uh, this is the only way in Greek to say the word was God. If John had put a definite article like a before God, it would have equated the word totally with God, and thus negating the distinction between the word and God that he made in the second phrase. It would not have allowed the Father and the Holy Spirit to be God. Now that's another serious heresy that we got to be watching out for. But you could also say, while most of us don't understand the technicalities of the Greek grammar well enough to discuss this matter intelligently, although there may be some here, I'm sure Pastor Dan could give us some insight on this, because he's very knowledgeable in the Greek, right? Uh, he remembers his days uh, in Greek class, I'm sure, with great fondness. In fact, I spoke to his Greek teacher just not too long ago. Uh, He didn't remember who Dan was. But anyway, (laughs) knowledgeable Greek scholars point out the inconsistency of this New World Translation. That's the translation used by the Jehovah Witnesses. And even most modern translations we would not use. They have it right. And again, I'm told the Greek construction here is emphasizing a qualitative aspect of the word, which means that he had all the attributes, all the qualities and essence of the Father, though they differed in person. And the construction God, uh, through John, chose to express this idea was the most concise way it could have been stated, and that the word was God. Jesus was God. And yet he's distinct from the Father. Now, there's also another reason is that the scriptures clearly proclaim Jesus as God. Even within the gospel of John, you find in John chapter 5 and verse 18, the Jews sought to kill Jesus because he was making himself equal with God. In response, Jesus doesn't correct them by saying, well, I didn't mean to imply that I'm God. No, he doesn't say that. Rather, he claims in chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, that the Father hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Now, that's a bold claim to deity. And when at the climax of John's Gospel, chapter 28, in verse 28, Thomas sees the risen Jesus and he proclaims, My Lord and what? My God. He was not making an exclamation, as the Jehovah Witnesses would claim, which would have been used using God's name in vain. No, he was saying, my Lord and my God. Surely Jesus would have rebuked him if he had been using that as a, a name, his name in vain, but instead Jesus affirms Thomas' confession. And years later on the Isle of Patmos, the Apostle John had a vision of the risen Lord in Revelation chapter 1, And John fell before him as a dead man, and Jesus said, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. In Isaiah chapter forty-six or 44 and verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And so in light of Isaiah, clearly Jesus was claiming to be the Lord of hosts, the only living and true God. And I believe John intends that the whole of his gospel be read in light of these first verses here. They're foundational. The deeds and the words of Jesus are the deeds and the words of God. And if this is not true... This is a blasphemous book. We're wasting our time. And so verse 1 affirms Jesus is eternal. He's the second person of the Trinity, and then He is God. And that also affirms to us that Jesus is the Word. Verse 14 clearly makes this identification. Go down to verse 14 again, and you notice there it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, many, many pages have been written on the possible links between John's concept of the Word in relation to how it was used in Greek philosophy. They viewed the Logos as the rational mind that ruled the universe. The problem is... We can't really know what extent John may or may not have had some Greek concepts in mind when he called Jesus the Word. No doubt, even if John was aware of these Greek ideas, he, under the inspiration of God, used the term to show the true meaning of the word logos. But I think the clear link in John 1 with Genesis 1 primarily roots his meaning of logos in the Old Testament. Genesis one repeatedly says, and God said, and God said. Psalm 33 and verse six says, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. And then in verse nine, it says, for he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Psalm 107 verse 20 declares, He sent His word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. You see, God's word accomplishes the purpose for which He sends it forth. There is creative power in the word of God. Jesus is that word. And so when John calls Jesus the word, he means that God has spoken to us and revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal creator of all things. And so we need to consider two things here, two very important things. This reveals, number one, what is the invisible God like? By the way, I don't know what you're thinking right now, by the way. I don't, I don't know what you're thinking. Maybe you're not thinking I dare say most of you are thinking, though. But I still don't know what it is. You cannot know my thoughts unless I put them into words. And I better be thinking about this message, right? (laughs) Or else I'm in trouble. But since I'm speaking to you, you have a pretty good idea of what I'm thinking. Now, God is spirit, but he's invisible to our finite senses. And John 1.18 says, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So Jesus himself asserts in chapter 14 and verse 9, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And so it is only through Jesus that we can know God personally. So that's the first thing it shows us, what the invisible God is like. The second thing is, it shows us our responsibility toward God. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 and 2 says, God, who at sundry times and divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, who hath he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. By the way, do you see how the Bible continually interlinks and comments on itself over and over. The best commentary is the Bible itself. If God has spoken to us through Jesus, the Word, then we'd better listen. We'd better listen to it, and we'd better obey the Word. That is, Jesus. John 3.36 draws the line. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And so to ignore God's word to us in Jesus, that's a serious mistake. Jesus is the eternal God, the authoritative word of God. To ignore him is to our eternal peril. So in verse 1 and 2, John asserts that Jesus is the eternal word of God, distinct from the Father, and yet equally with uh, God with the Father, and God the Father has spoken to us in Jesus Christ. Now the second thing we notice here is the creator of all that exists. Verse 3, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now I've already pointed this out, but... uh Everything that has come into being came through the, to being through Jesus, and so clearly Jesus never came into being. He's already he already existed eternally. Now the Bible teaches us that all three members of the Trinity were involved in the creation. God the Father created everything, but he did it through Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God participated in creation because we read in Genesis 1 and verse 2 uh, that uh, the Spirit moved upon the face of the earth. A, a God's a statement in Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our image. That implies the involvement of the Trinity in the creation of human beings. And as with the person of Christ, it is not just a coincidence that Satan has strongly attacked the biblical doctrine of creation. If God created everything that exists out of nothing by the word of his power, then contrary to what the atheists claim, matter is not eternal. Only God is eternal. Creation also points to the amazing power and intelligence of God. It shows us that we are finite, we are limited creatures, and thus we must submit to God and depend upon Him. In other words, if Jesus is the Creator, then He is God, which means I'm not God. And that is a foundational lesson for all of life. So the Creator of all that exists... Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we find in verse 4, the author of life. Verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John uses life, the word life, 44 times in his gospel, more than any other New Testament book. And in light of verses 1 through 3, the life belonging to the word is related not to salvation, but to creation. The next phrase, the light was the light of men, then either points to the fact of man being a created in the image of God or the way in which God's invisible attributes and eternal power and divine nature are revealed in creation. But since John goes on to develop the truth that Jesus came to this earth to bring spiritual life to those who were dead in their sins and spiritual light To those who live in darkness, then verse 4 may have a dual meaning, pointing back to creation, but also ahead to salvation in Jesus Christ. And so the application is this. Those who are spiritually dead in their sins need life, and Jesus is the source of that life. They are spiritually in darkness, but when they are born again, the light goes on. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 referring to those who are perishing, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And then in verse 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. He's eternal. He's a creator. He's the author of life. And finally, he's the only source of true light. He's the only source of true light. Verse 5. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now we have a word here, comprehend. really has kind of two meanings, much like our word grasp. It can mean to comprehend or grasp mentally, or it can mean to overcome or take hold of something in the sense of mastering it physically. Now, if it refers to creation, then John's meaning is that when God said, let there be light, it overcame the darkness. If you turn on a light in a dark room, the darkness loses and the light prevails. But John uses the present tense here, which probably focuses on Jesus coming to earth and the conflict between him and the powers of darkness that unfold in this gospel. And they crucified him, but he arose and he conquered darkness. His salvation conquers the spiritual darkness in every heart that trusts him. the, The word may also have the meaning which also fits the theme of this gospel In verse 10, it tells us the world knew him not. In verse 11, even his own people received him not. And Jesus points out in chapter 3 that there are those in darkness that love darkness and hate light because their deeds are evil. And so they didn't comprehend Jesus. And because sinners walk in darkness, according to chapter 8 and verse 12, they fail to see who Jesus really is. John eight forty eight, they actually accuse him of having a demon. So we could say perhaps the term has both meanings. The darkness will not overcome the light as it comes through Jesus. And also the darkness cannot comprehend the light unless Jesus opens blind eyes to see. So John's point in this opening but very stunning description of Jesus Christ is to tell us that he is the eternal word. He's the creator of everything. And he reveals the life and light of God in this dark world. Have you ever been amazed because God opened your eyes to see who Jesus really is? And because he is eternal God, we can believe in him. We can submit everything in our lives to him as our sovereign Lord. Because he's the creator, we uh, should worship him as we see his handiwork and what he's made. If his life is in us, salvation is secure. And because he is our life, we should be filled with hope because we will spend eternity with him. And because he is our light, we should let him shine into every decision we make into every area of our lives. To know God, you must look to Jesus, the eternal word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven.